Would you turn to Colossians chapter 2? Colossians 2. We're going through the book of Colossians verse by verse. And today we'll be reading a big chunk, believe it or not, from verse 11 to verse 15. So read with me the word of God. As it says, And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having cancelled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, <clears throat> having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now last time we read it in chapter in that same chapter of verse 10 where it says and in him you have been made complete and we said that made complete means fulfilled what does this really mean how is this relevant to us today how do we really Live this out. What does that really look like? What does it mean to to be fulfilled in Him? Brothers, allow me to, uh, as way of introduction, to share with you some hard truth so we can have a proper grasp of what Paul is actually saying. I want to speak to you this morning as a man, just like all of us living in a broken world. I'm sure all of us would agree with me that after the fall in Genesis 3, that it's not really hard to figure out that there is something terribly wrong with the world we live in. Let's be honest. Beneath much of our smiles and under the hood of the clean, shaven faces, there is brokenness. Unmet expectations from relationships. Unwanted trials. Job said it rightly when he said in chapter 14 verse 1, Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Which means that we just have just a few days that we live here on earth and they're all full of trouble, right? Solomon echoed the same thing when he said in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 22, For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Which means, what is the point of all of our hard work? And he answers it immediately and he says, because all his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. In a nutshell, nothing really satisfies in this world. And if you haven't arrived to this conclusion, all I can say to you, just hang it around a little while longer on earth and you will know what Solomon is trying to say. 
You know, a young man would say, oh, if I just get a family, I'll be the happiest man in the world. Then he gets what he wants. And then what happens? Conflicts. Issues arise. And then he would begin to think of himself. Ah, probably what I need is more money. Yes, that's right. The more money I get, the more I'll have a happy life. And then his body begins to break down. And again he comes and he thinks to himself. He says, oh, this this early retirement. If I can just give, give my body a break. I'm just going to rest, and for the rest of my life, I'll be holidaying, and then I'll be happy. And then reality hits. And he realizes that he's spending the rest of his life not so much holidaying, but visiting doctors and hospitals. And once he stops working, that sense of purposeless living hit hard like a ton of a brick and he feels useless. Depression sets in. Brothers, all I'm trying to say is we cannot escape the effect of sin in our lives. Parents are brutally controlling. Children are out of control. Spouses are very demanding. Friends betray us and our bodies are breaking down. This is the reality we're living in. Right? Where do we go? Where do we turn to? Again, I'm going to remind you, I did say earlier that I want to be brutally honest with us. And we must stop using this fallen creation to function as a God replacement. It just won't work. And if you're delusioned to think that you can somehow find rest in this fallen world, you know what you're like? You're like a thirsty, lost man in a desert and he's chasing after a mirage. You won't find it. Truth of the matter is, you and I are hardwired with thirst for eternity that only God can quench. Only God is ever meant to be the fountain of all satisfaction. Not your spouse, not your children, not your health. You and I were created to find our fulfillment in our relationship with God. And so I want to ask you a very pointy question today, this morning. Is your soul finding its delight in God? Please reflect. Have you found all you need for identity, comfort, security in God? Because God is the fountain of living water, not creation. He is, according to the scripture, is the only one that is all-sufficient, almighty, all-loving being. Which means that we are always in need of Him. Are you finding your delight intentionally in God? Now, what does that have to do with today's passage? Everything. Everything. Because what is it that hinders Christians from enjoying God? What is it? You know, John Piper, I love his motto. Do you know his motto? He says this, God is most glorified in us when we are 
Amen. Most satisfied in Him. Isn't this what you want your life to be like? Then why is it that we don't really run after God? Why is it that we don't intentionally, consciously find our delight in Him? Let me explain to you why. What happens to us as Christians? You start your life with God. That's great. You're pumped. You're enjoying God. You feel you can take on the whole world for Him when you first believed. But then what happens? Well, just like everyone else, you get tempted. You fall. You give in to sin. Well, fine. What do you do? Well, what do you do when you, when you, when you sin? You repent, right? No. What happens? The devil comes in. He doesn't want you to do that. He, he comes up to you with his lies. And what is the devil's aim? It is to cripple you. It is to hinder you from doing that one thing. You can do anything else, but not that one thing. What is it? To enjoy God. He comes to you and says, ah, look at his spiritual condition. Take a look at your sin. Aren't you disgusted about yourself? You, you must have such an ugly, wicked heart. How can you enjoy God with that when you're, when you're such a, a filthy sinner? Don't be ridiculous. Be honest with yourself. You don't love him. Then what do you do? You take, you take a look at yourself. And what do you find? Well, you're right. I sin so badly. How can I say I love him when I, when I do what I do? I must have a terrible, wicked heart. I'm not worthy to enjoy him. And then what happens? What do we do after that? Well, because... You don't know what it means that you are complete in Christ. You buy into this lie that you have a wicked heart, that you haven't been changed, and you begin to borrow man's philosophy. And you say to yourself, maybe I should pray more. Maybe I read the Bible more. Maybe I should serve more. Not out of gratitude, no. Where are you at? Well, Rather than resting in what Christ has done for you, you begin to try to rest and rely on what you are doing for Him. Why? In order to make up for the wicked heart that you now think that you have. And Paul comes here in this passage. And he says to you, Believer, child of God, Christ actually changed your nature forever. You no longer have the wicked heart that you once had. You've got a new heart. And that is what it means that in Him you have been made complete. So we start with the first point. Believer, I'm talking to believers, not unbelievers. You have a changed heart. Praise be to Christ. Because of Jesus Christ, your heart has been changed and therefore you can enjoy God. So we read. Let's start. Verse 11. And in him you were also circumcised. Now what is circumcision? Circumcision is to cut out. That's just the word. To cut around. According to Leviticus 12 verse 3, every uh, Jewish boy had to be circumcised uh, on the eighth day after his birth. Meaning he had to have the, the foreskin of his male organ to be cut off. It was a sign that he belonged to the covenant nation, nation of Israel. Now, why, why did God impose such a gruesome and, and really literally bloody ritual? What was the significance about this? Well, circumcision was a, a, a graphic way to illustrate two things. Two things. 
Number one, it was to show how deep sin is rooted in man. That all the way down even to his most private, most sensitive faculties, all his being has been infected with sin. Okay? It's very simple. It just shows the moral condition of man. Isaiah 6, Isaiah, sorry, chapter 1 and verse 6 says, From the sole of the foot even to the head, the whole head is sick, and the whole heart is faint. The Bible makes it absolutely clear about this, that every thought of man is tainted with sin. That is exactly God's assessment of every unbeliever in this room. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says, Then Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent, every, not every second, but every intent of the thoughts of his heart was what? Only evil. Continually. There's no break. It's not like evil and then there is good. No, only evil. And it's not like evil and then there is a pause for a break and then another evil. No, only evil continually. And that's what the foreskin of the male organ points to. The old corrupt nature. The utter wickedness that lies deep in the heart of man. That is who you are today, unbeliever. You know, you, you try to encourage your child and you say, Son, let's read the Bible. Let's pray and let's get to know our God. What does the child say? Dad, didn't we read it last week? Oh, we're going to read it again. And you feel like you're dragging a, a dead leg with you. Why is that? It's by default. Every person that is born of a woman, by default, that is his condition. Man in his natural state does not seek after God. There is no interest in the God of the Bible. There may be interest in other gods, but not the God of the Bible. That's the first thing that circumcision points to. The second thing, circumcision, is an illustration that points to the deepest level of cleansing necessary so that man can enjoy God. There had to be a cutout, not so much of the foreskin of a male organ, but of the old nature. That's the real thing. You see, why did Paul write this? We've been going through this for quite some time. There were false teachers that infiltrated the church of Colossae. And what did they do? They brought with them their own philosophy as well as mixed with um, Jewish rituals. And what did they say to them? They said to the Colossians, which obviously believers, they said, hey, uh, do you want to be make sure that you're saved? Do you want to enjoy God? Well, guess what you have to do? You have to be literally circumcised. That's what they said to them. Imagine if we adopted this in our evangelism. Imagine if we went back in time and we went door knocking, or maybe next time we do door knocking, and, and we go out and we knock on people's doors with, with, a, with a gospel tract in one hand and... A Stanley knife on the other. <laughs> right? And, and, and telling people, well, you want to be saved? You, you need both. <laughs> Just won't work, right? Wrong. God was really interested in the real circumcision. The circumcision of the heart. Not the male organ. 
Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 4 says this, Circumcise yourselves to Yahweh and remove the foreskin of your heart. It's the heart that God is really after. That's why in Proverbs it says, Give me your heart, my son. Paul echoes the same thing in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. says, for he is not a Jew who, who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is inwardly, and circumcision is that of which? Of the heart. And so... Paul says in our text today, in him, you were circumcised. You don't need this external circumcision. Why? Because you were internally circumcised. You were circumcised with circumcision that excels far beyond the ritual circumcision. What is it? It's not so much the foreskin, but it's your, your old heart has already been taken out. That's what he means. It's been replaced with a new heart. Now further, beyond this, he goes further and we ask, well, how did it happen? Do we do this with our own willpower? Today, I will change my heart. The Bible actually asks this question. He would actually say, can the Ethiopian change his skin color? Samuel, can you do that? No, he can't. Or a leopard, his, his spots? No. How does it happen? We don't need to speculate. He tells you with a circumcision made without hands. In the removal of the body of the flesh, that is the old nature. That's the, the body of the flesh. It points to the old nature. It's all entirely been removed. Now, who did this? Who did it? By the circumcision of Christ. It's not the work of of man. It is all of Christ. God is the one that circumcises the heart. That is exactly what the scripture teaches. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 6 says, Moreover, Yahweh, your God, will circumcise your heart. And the heart of your descendants to love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and so that you may live. Again, in Ezekiel 36, which speaks clearly of the new covenant and what God is going to do through Jesus Christ. Now listen to this and please pay careful attention to the person, personal pronoun. Who will do the operation. Pay careful attention. Verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Who does it? God does. What are you bringing into the table? The old heart. That's all you do. God does the operation. You know, you hear some Christians say, Oh, what a wonderful thing. What is it? Ah, uh, how you, you found God. You found God. As if God is playing hide and seek with you and he's kind of hidden and you do search hunt. Hunting for God. Newsflash. God is not the one who's lost. 
It's you, it's me. The scripture makes it very clear. We never sought after God. We are lost in our love for sin. And it is not you who found God. It is God through Christ who found you. And operated in your soul. And cut out this old heart of stone. That stubborn heart that resisted to know God. Cut it all out. That heart that only was determined to pursue its own passions. Apart from God. And then he gave you a new heart. A heart of flesh. That seeks after him. In other words, he put sense into your mind. He placed holy affections within you to hunger for him, to pursue him, to love him. What a glorious supernatural operation performed in you, in your heart, by the greatest surgeon in the whole world, Jesus Christ himself. Then Paul goes on to show us, to show us how Christ did this operation and basically says it's through our vital union with him. So we continue now, verse 12. And he says, having been buried with him in baptism. Now that word baptism here, it just means the word dip. Right? It's just the word dip. So please get out of your mind the, the water, the H2O. That's not what you had in mind. That's not in that context. Um, it just basically speaks of the vital union with Christ. You were dipped in Christ. That is the Greek word. You were dipped in Christ. Meaning when you were saved, you were immersed in Christ. You died with him. Buried with him, meaning you were, were, you were taken 2,000 years ago and now you find yourself buried with Christ and he turns his grave to be the surgery room where he performs his heart operation in you. And what is the significance about that? Why is he saying you were buried with him? In fact, let me ask you that question. We need to understand this. We need to get this right. I know those of us who have done Gospel of Mark, you probably remember this. What is the significance and why is it the Scripture keeps on repeating that Jesus was buried? What's so special about that? Well, if all the Scripture said that Jesus died and then he arose again, those first century skeptics, they would have said, ah, died and rose again. I mean, maybe he was just bruised. Severely, he fell unconscious or something, and then and then he was healed, maybe, and and so there is no resurrection. But because he was buried, in other words, his corpse was was carefully laid in a in a grave for three days. It can only mean that he really died. He actually died. Right? That's about Christ. So what's so significant about we were buried with him? Same thing. What does that mean? Meaning Paul is underscoring the fact that you, believer, really died. You actually died. You died to the system of this world. You died to your old ambition. You died to your old way of life. Romans 6, verse 6, it says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. In other words, no longer is sin dominating in your life. It does not have to have the final say in what you do and what you think. 
Paul continues and he says, in which you were also raised up with him. That word raised up, please note the verb, it's past tense. You were raised with him. In other words, he's not talking about the resurrection of our bodies, which will happen later on at the rapture time. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the resurrection of what? Our souls. You were raised with him. Your life was so intimate with Christ that when he was raised from the dead, your soul also raised from the dead. And you have a new life now. You have a new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you now have a new nature. Only one nature, and it is new. Are you saying I don't have an old nature? Is that what you're saying? That is exactly what I'm saying. Uh, Does that mean I don't have an old heart? That is exactly what the Bible says. It's a new nature only. And it has a new set of desires. That is to, to love Christ, to enjoy Christ. Now the Lord of your life is Jesus Christ. You can freely, willingly follow him, listen to him, obey him from your new heart. Before you had this new heart, you couldn't do that, even if you tried. But now you can do that. You can. What about sin? Does does that mean we don't sin? Of course not. Of course we do sin. But sin now reigns where? In our unredeemed flesh. Not in our heart. Your heart has been circumcised. What does it mean it's been circumcised? It means it cannot be stained with sin any longer. We need to get this. It is impeccable heart. Your heart cannot sin, brothers. What an awesome reality brought about, accomplished by Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus We must never say, I have a filthy heart. It's gone. It's replaced with a new one. So don't say you don't love God with your heart. No. Praise be to God for what Jesus has accomplished in you. You do love God with your heart. In fact, Your new heart cannot do anything else but to love God. And yes, while we know that there is sin remains in the unredeemed flesh, but praise be to God because of Jesus, one day this unredeemed flesh will be gone and replaced with a new one. But your new heart will stay with you for eternity. Profound truth. So what does this mean? It means you are now free to enjoy God. Go ahead and and do that. Well, so far, so good. But the devil doesn't stop there. He comes back to you. And he begins to whisper, well, I'm glad you have a new heart. That's, That's all good, but come on, what about your sins? What do you mean? Well, how can, you, how can you enjoy God when you only have so many sins? Let's face it, you can fill up 10 soccer fields with the amount of sins that you've committed. How can you lift up your head to Him when you are full of sin? Can't you feel your guilt? Right? Well, what should I do? Well, You should bury your head in shame. Go, go find something else to enjoy. Maybe watch a movie or do the scrolling of Instagram. Do something else, but not God. So what does Paul say about that? Well, second point. 
forgiveness of sins. Because of Jesus Christ, praise be to him, we can enjoy God because our sins are forgiven. But look how Paul renders it. Verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions. Unbelievers are dead. They are like walking zombies and carrying upon their shoulders their sin, their their guilt and shame. Dead. They are lifeless because of their sin. And while they may not realize it or they may not feel it, but that's God's assessment and that's all that matters. And they're dead not only because they're full of transgressions. Let's continue. And he puts that interesting phrase and he says, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. What does this mean? What does this phrase mean? Uncircumcision of your flesh. Well, it's, it's a phrase that really refers to, if you look at it in Ephesians, it actually means the Gentiles, those that are outside of the covenant of God, out of God's blessings. Okay? What that means is that they are dead to God. Their sin and their guilt created this infinite chasm between them and God. And no matter how much they cry out to God, because of that infinite chasm, their prayer won't go beyond their ceiling. In one hand, that side, you've got sinful man, and on the other far end, this infinitely holy God who hates every last Evil thought of man. He finds sin repulsive. So what can man do to be right with God in order to enjoy God? What can he do? Absolutely nothing. Scripture says that man has no hope and without God in the world. But for us who believe, For us believers, let's continue. Paul says, he made you alive together with him. He made you alive together with him. Meaning, Paul is saying, ponder upon this, believers. Continue to reflect on this. Please note something interesting and go ahead, go back and if you want in your own time and read it. And underline how many times that personal pronoun, you, 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 you. By the way, properly, you don't need all these many yous, right? You only need to mention it once. But do you know why he keeps on repeating you, you, you? He means, brethren. And it's as though... Within the letter of Colossians, he's bringing his finger, index finger out, and he's pointing it to you, and he's saying, you, yes, even you, I'm talking about you, brethren. You who are so deeply fallen, so hopelessly lost. You who are so utterly corrupt, who who have had a black, dark heart. This was your state of being. What is it? Uncircumcision of your flesh. Meaning, you were children of wrath. Cursed. Enemies of God. And while you were full of sin and having these heavenly cops after you, and and when you couldn't do a bit of good works for God to accept you, oh, how merciful God, oh, how the great love that God has for you. Why? He made you alive together. With him. Who him? Jesus Christ. In other words, your sin that created this chasm 
But Christ bridged that gap. And he laid hold of you even when you were dead and full of sin. And he died. And you died with him. And when he was brought to life, because of that union that you have with him, you too receive life. And he continues on and tells you, well, how? How did you receive that life? On what ground did you receive life? Let's read together. Heaven forgiving us some of our transgressions. Amen? No, amen. You read with me. Some of you have your eyes sleep, uh, uh, closed. I'm not sure if you're praying or sleeping. But let's read again. Having forgiven us our past transgressions. No. Having forgiven us all our transgressions. Past, present, and even the ones that you haven't yet thought of that you will think of in the future. Brethren, be of good cheer. God never does a half-baked job. Right? When he forgives, he forgives like God. The entirety of your sin and guilt were forgiven. And that will be remembered no more, the Bible tells us. Psalm 86 verse 5, it says, For you, Lord, are good. Why? Why is the psalmist saying that God is good? He continues on, ready to forgive. And abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. It's like God at the, at the line and ready, set to go. And he, he, he really loves to forgive. He just goes forward. He bolts out and he wants to forgive the moment we call upon him. Small sin, big sin, visible, invisible. He is eager to forgive all of our sins. Micah 7.19 says this, He, that's God, will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, He will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea where no man could ever reach. And if that is not enough, and if that is not beautiful enough, Paul continues on and he gives us such a vivid picture to, to enforce the thought and to impress it into our heart so that we would never ever forget it. So what, is, what does he say? Verse 14 Having cancelled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He's borrowing of uh, an, uh, something that happened at his time that Colossians knew very well. When criminals were crucified, the Roman soldiers, what did they used to nail above the criminals? The crimes that were committed. And why did they do that? It is as to say to all the watching crowd, the people that marching up and down and looking at this criminal as he was hung and, and these crimes that were committed, it is as to say, hey, listen, those offenses that were committed against the law of the land rendered this rebel that was hung worthy of such death. And so... In that same way, the law of God was the decrees in here in this verse that was against us. The law of God. It condemned us. It confronted us that we are guilty sinners. Under God's wrath, falling short of God's glory. 
Galatians 3.10 says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Cursed. God's law cursed us. With every letter of God's law, it declared you and I and everyone in this room guilty criminals worthy of death. Now also, see where it says the certificate of debt. What is this certificate of debt? Every sin, every crime committed against God's law is in this certificate of debt. It's recorded there. And in that certificate of debt, if you like, at the bottom of it, you know, what is due, the due amount, and you can imagine that due amount is eternal punishment. Separation from God in the outer darkness where worms do not die and fire is not quenched. But then, what did God do? Having cancelled out the certificate of debt. Cancelled. God took this document with all of its demands and then he completely obliterated it. How did he do that? Continuing on with that illustration that Paul has given us and it says, he's taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. Which cross? It was nailed to the cross where Jesus hung beneath, beneath it. So do we get this picture? There on the cross is your certificate of death and who hung beneath it? Jesus Christ. Every believer can say, it was meant to be me that had his hands nailed on the cross. It was meant to be me that hung naked. It should have been me that bore the wrath of God. This blood that was shed on the cross, it was meant to be my blood. Why? I'm the one who sinned and broke this holy law of God. This was my certificate of debt. But yet, Jesus loved me. He died for me. He bore the curse for me. And yes, hallelujah, I am forgiven. All my transgressions have been forgiven, blotted out. So what does this mean? When the devil comes and reminds you of your sin and then you begin to feel weighed heavy because of the guilt, remember Jesus paid your debt in full. Your sins have been washed away by his blood. All of them. Why did he do that? So you, can, you and I can freely have unbroken, unhindered fellowship with God so that you and I can enjoy God that once upon a time we could not. Now we can. What are you meant to do with this? You're meant to go ahead and with all the might that God will grant you, even in this broken world, you can delight yourself in God. Amen? We continue. It's not done yet. And just to top it up, by Jesus' death, Jesus crushed Satan and his followers. We don't have to fear them anymore. So number three, 
enemies defeated. Enemies defeated. There's so much to say about this, I'm going to have to cut it short a little bit so we don't go over time. So we read verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, the rulers and authorities put together in this context obviously means Satan and all his demons. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Now, what does this mean? Again, Paul is such a a picture uh, man. He loves to use illustrations and he uses imageries all the time. So that's, again, another beautiful and colorful picture um, of of a triumphal um, procession. used to happen many times uh, with uh, Rome. When Rome um, won a military victory... And then the conquered rulers would be put on display. What did that look like? I want to take you back with me 2,000 years ago at the time of Paul just to see what kind of celebration was going on that Paul had in mind when he penned these words. Imagine um, a Roman general just won a great victory. Then what happens? All the the main roads of Rome are prepared for a spectacular show. All cleaned up. They would put up scaffold for people to to sit on and to stand upon. Then, Then all Rome turns up as they're watching first hundreds of chariots leading this procession. And then after those hundreds of chariots, you you have wagons after wagons and thousands of wagons sometimes full of the defeated army's gold and silver and treasures and all the weapons of the defeated army on those wagons. And then as they see this, then comes after that the the defeated king's chariot and his crown, his armor, and all his children are walking in that parade. And following after all of that, the king himself dressed up in black garment and his hands are handcuffed and he's walking behind this Amazing, glorious display. Then after the king, there would be the prisoners of wars and the captives. And, and as they are marching behind the, the defeated king and they all weeping and they stretching out their hands and they begging the crowd for, for mercy. And then finally, here comes the Roman general. And, and he's dressed in, in gold and royal splendor and arrayed in that amazing glory, riding his chariot, of course, his chest out, standing straight, shoulders are back. And then you have all these watching crowds cheering him on. And say, this is... Our undefeated warrior. This is our reigning champion that won the war for for us and subdued our enemies. What an awesome display of absolute power and victory over the enemy. And then Paul uses this imagery. And he says to the Colossians, Hey, brothers, this is our Christ. Jesus accomplishes great victory over the evil powers of this world. It is Jesus who reigns supremely as the unequaled 
unmatched, undefeated champion of all time. He is the sovereign general of God's army, the Lord of hosts. And as Paul writing that, he's, he's inviting the Colossians and all of us to, as though to, to stand up and, and be an extension of that crowd to clap for Christ and to cheer him on and to say, hey, this is our mighty Savior. He is our hero. Yes, by his death, burial, and resurrection, what do you do? He changed our hearts, right? He, he forgave all of our sins because he is in us and we are in him. So when he conquered, guess who also conquered? Us. And with him, we will conquer. So what demon out there that he left for us to fear or to boss us around? No. With the, with the armor of God in our hands and Christ in our heart, even in this broken world that we live in, we can go from strength to strength. How? Well, that veil that separated us from God has been torn asunder by Christ. And no sin or devil can hinder us from enjoying God. Brothers, this is what it means that in Him you have been made complete. What does it mean? Jesus did all that is necessary for us to enjoy God who happens to be the all-satisfying being. Well, unbelievers, in the light of what you heard, I want to ask you, why? Why would you ever turn your heart from such an awesome news why would you reject such a, an ocean of honey full of mercy and grace only to choose death why why would you choose the bitter cup of misery for eternity to come when Christ made it possible for you to be forgiven and to be made right with God so you can enjoy him. What fool would turn his back on such a wonderful gospel opportunity? Dear friend, I, I, I plead with you. Tell him that you are in need of him. Tell him to stretch his hand and touch you. C confess your sin. Don't lie and pretend that you're good when you know in your heart you're not. Confess. Tell him that you never truly loved him. You never sought after him. That's okay. Why? Because that is precisely why he's called the Savior, to save a sinner like you. No, rather, he is a great Savior. Why? Because he came to save great sinners like you. Why would you laugh and smile and get distracted with phones and what have you in your mind and kick back? This wonderful gospel opportunity. I plead with you. Do not harden your heart. Do not tell Christ. Set me free from this enslavery of sin. Deliver me. Save me. Hide me in your wounds. I give you my heart. And forgive me. Amen. Let's pray. God.
What a wonderful Savior we have. What a glorious champion who leads our march from victory to victory because the battle has already won. And one day, sin will be eradicated and we'll have the redeemed flesh and nothing then will ever hinder us at all from enjoying you, God. Glory be to your Son, Jesus. Amen.